Well, if you're new, like I said before, my name's Evan. I'm one of the pastors here. But I'm not usually standing here doing this. I'm usually there doing that. Um, pastor Jim is our lead pastor, teaching pastor, and he was on vacation this week. So um, I was tasked with preaching, and it turns out to be a good thing because he came down with something, right, Marcy? <laughs> He's homesick. So it all worked out good. Well, um, as we mentioned earlier, today is Palm Sunday. Mo- most of you probably know that, but if you're new to uh, Christianity or you didn't grow up around it, you may be wondering what that means. And we saw the kids walking through with the Palm why it's called Palm Sunday today, and um, and why this passage that we're going to study is referred to as Jesus' uh, triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we're 48. So if you have a Bible and you want to open it to that, the, it's going to be on the screen as well. If you're new and you don't have a Bible, there's more Bibles back there behind the offering table on um, some tables back there. And if you don't own one and you need one, feel free to take one and write your name in it, and it's yours. And also, if you're new to the Bible, how you find Luke is you open up to the front of your Bible, to the table of contents, and there's the Old Testament there, and then there's the New Testament set of books below that. It's the third book of the New Testament. Just find Luke and see what page number it's on and turn to that. Luke 19. 28 through 48. In honor of God's word, if you're able, would you stand and and we'll read this passage together. You're, you're welcome to read it out loud with me, or you can just listen if that's better for you. But let's read after I get my glasses on. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, He wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. This is God's word. You may be seated. So this account that we just read about, this is the beginning of the most important series of events in human history. This week, the things that took place during this week that we just read about, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, the things he did there, being crucified on Friday, and then, spoiler alert, raising from the dead on Sunday. Those set of events are the most important events that have ever occurred in human history. All of history up until then was leading up to that, and everything since then looks back at that and hinges on that. And the plans for what took place during this week some 2,000 years ago, the plan, those plans were laid out from the beginning before Eve ever took a bite of the forbidden fruit. How do we know this? Well, the Bible tells us this, but it's important to understand that God, he's, omni- he's omniscient, he knows everything, and God knew what would happen if he created humans and gave him a free will. He knew that we would rebel and sin. He knew all that. He knew we would rebel and sin, that our sin would separate us from him, that there's no way that we could pay the price for our sin, and that somebody else would have to pay the price for us. So before we even needed it, God put these plans in place. He always knew that Jesus, that he would have to come to the earth in the, in the person of Jesus and live a perfect life and shed his blood on the cross for our sin, paying the penalty for our sin because we could never do it, and then raising from the dead three days later, conquering the grave, conquering death. Why did he do that? Why, why would he do all of that? Because he is perfectly loving and he's perfectly merciful and he's perfectly full of grace, but he's also, also perfectly just. He couldn't just wink at our sin and brush it under the rug. Because he is perfectly just, he would have to, there, there would have to be payment for that sin. So all of this wasn't an accident. It was planned. And the other thing we need to know is that everything that Jesus did was deliberate. 
to tell us something about him. Beginning with Jesus sending two of his disciples to find a colt, the colt of a donkey, for him to ride on. He tells them what will happen and what to say. So in verse 29, I'll read it for us again. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. Now it might be easy for us to say, to wonder about how Jesus knew that the colt was there. And some have suggested that he made prior arrangements and um, the owner of the colt put it there for him and knew that he was going to come get it. And, you know, he gave the disciples a code word to, to let them know that they, that it was okay that they took it. And that is possible. But I think it's important for us to realize that Jesus knew, knows everything. He knew what was going to happen. And there's actually another account, um, after he enters Jerusalem where he sends, uh, Peter and John to go find a room for them to observe the Passover feast in together. And in that case, he says, go into the city and you'll see a man carrying a jar, follow him. And that's the house that, um, that you're to, you're to prepare the room in. And in that case, I can't see Jesus saying, hey, go walk with a jar at this certain time so that my disciples can find you. I think it's important for us to know that Jesus had the ability to prophesy and, and to see what was going to happen. Who he is. He does say, tell people who he is, but there's, there are many instances where he heals somebody or when somebody declares that they believe he's the Christ uh, or when demons speak out and say, we know who you are. He tells them, don't tell anybody. Don't make it public. My time has not yet come. Well, what time? The time for him to reveal himself publicly, and that time is now. When he's going to enter into Jerusalem. So, like I said, this this account is in all four Gospels. And in Matthew's account of this Gospel, which you can find in Matthew chapter 21... Matthew tells us specifically that he did this right into Jerusalem on a donkey, on a colt, that he did this to fulfill Zechariah 9-9. Zechariah was a prophet in the Old Testament, and he wrote a book called Zechariah. And Zechariah 9-9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So Jesus is deliberately saying with this act, 
I am that king. I am the Messiah. And you might ask yourself, well, what kind of prophecy fulfillment is that? Couldn't anybody just find a colt of a donkey and ride into Jerusalem and say, I'm the king? Yes, they could. But they didn't have all the other fulfilled prophecies that Jesus had that he couldn't have orchestrated himself. Being born in Jerusalem, having his family come from a certain area of the country, and many, many other prophecies, not to mention all the people he healed uh, and all of that. All of that coupled with this, he's saying, I am deliberately fulfilling Zechariah 9.9. I'm declaring that I am your Messiah. And then as Jesus rides along, there's a great crowd of people, his disciples, the apostles, other people who have heard about him and heard about the miracles he's done. They're all there rejoicing. And as he rides along, they spread their cloaks on the road, which is something that was done for kings. In verse 37, it says, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So, like I said, a lot of these people were there because they wanted to see Jesus. They had heard great things about him. He was healing people. Could he be the Messiah? And not too long before this, Jesus had raised a man from the dead. His friend Lazarus had died. He'd been in the tomb for four days. Jesus called him forth from death. It was witnessed by many people. Word spread. Many people were coming to see Lazarus, to see this great thing that had been done. So all these people are wondering, is this him? Is this the Messiah? And they were here to see that. Now it's, uh, Luke, this passage in Luke doesn't mention palm branches, which is why we call it Palm Sunday, because many of the people in, in the other accounts, it tells us that people cut down palm branches and were waving them and throwing them in the road in front of him. And uh, he doesn't mention the word Hosanna, which is another word that's associated with today. We sang earlier the song Hosanna. Um, I don't know why Luke doesn't mention it. Some people speculate that it's because his audience that he was writing to is a Gentile audience, and Hosanna was a very Jewish word. Um, it doesn't matter. But Hosanna is a word that means save. It's a cry for salvation to God. Matthew 21, 9 says, And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then back to our passage in Luke, in verse 39, it says, And some of the Pharisees, Pharisees were religious leaders, religious people, some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. So the Pharisees saw all this praise 
that they were giving Jesus. They saw this as blasphemy and they wanted him to call it blasphemy as well and to rebuke them and tell them not to praise him in this way. But Jesus accepted their worship. It was appropriate. Um, the Bible tells us in many places that all of creation testifies to the greatness of God. It talks about trees clapping their hands and mountains singing and, and, um, that's where this phrase fits in. The very stones would cry out. And if all of creation testifies to his greatness, how much more should humans who are made in his image and likeness praise him as well? So there's all this praising of Jesus going on, and yet we read that Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. Verse 41, And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. So Jesus' heart is broken because he came to save his people, to provide salvation for them, and they missed it. And I believe that this is Jesus mourning for what could have been. And also in this, he is predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. Not even 40 years after this event here, the Romans would besiege Jerusalem and destroy it. The temple would be destroyed. Jesus had said specifically about the temple in another place that not one stone would be left on another. And they literally dismantled the temple stone by stone to get at all the gold that the fire had melted within the crevices. So they had their chance to receive their Messiah, and they missed it. And then we read that Jesus, upon entering Jerusalem, cleanses the temple. The passage in Mark actually says that he went into the temple and looked around, and it was late in the day, so then he, he went to where he was staying, probably at Martha and Mary and Lazarus' house in Bethany. And then he came back the next day and cleansed the temple, which we're about to read about. But either way, he, the Messiah, the king, came into his temple. In verse 45, we read, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So that's with the time that this was happening was the time of the Passover feast. There were many Jews from all over who came to Jerusalem to observe the feast. And one of the things they had to do was make a sacrifice, uh, usually a, a pigeon. And so they would either have their own pigeon with them, and the priest might declare it unsatisfactory, blemished somehow, for the sacrifice, and so they'd have to go buy another one. And there were people there in the temple selling um, the animals that they needed 
and often they would there would be some price gouging going on. Another thing they had to do was pay the temple tax, and they had to pay the temple tax with the temple coins. And so they'd have to get whatever currency they had and go to a money changer and change their money for the temple coins, and there was some price gouging going on there too. And Jesus wasn't having any of it. The the passage in Matthew that talks about this, Matthew twenty one twelve, gives us a little more detail. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers. If you ever want to get somebody's attention, start flipping tables. Don't flip tables. Overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus cares a lot about how we worship him and about not prevent, not throwing up roadblocks to people who would come to him. They were throwing up roadblocks to people who were trying to come and worship God. God takes that very seriously. Don't ever throw up any roadblocks to people who want to come to God, any unnecessary roadblocks. Like you have to dress a certain way to come to church or look a certain way or act a certain way. Then it goes on in verse 14 of the Matthew 21 passage. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. He's healing people. And the religious leaders get upset about it. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of, out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise? Jesus loved to say that to the religious experts. He'd always say, have you never read? They, yes, they they read a lot. He would also he would have to correct them. So this tells us something very deliberate and interesting about Jesus as well. When he says, "Have you never read out of the mouth of infant and nursing babies you have prepared praise?" He's referring to Psalm eight two. That where God has ordained praise for Himself, God has ordained praise for himself from children and infants. So the praise is for God. But the children, the children's hosannas are not being directed to God, but to Jesus. And they're, and they're using the messianic title, Son of David. And Jesus accepts their worship. Jesus accepts their praise thereby applying to himself a passage of Scripture applicable only to God. Jesus is claiming to be God here. So as we read through this, there are many different reactions to Jesus. First, we have the people who were praising him as he came into Jerusalem. That's a good thing, right? 
They're praising him, crying out Hosanna, treating him like a king. But many of these same people later in the week would be crying crucify him. So what's the deal? They wanted something in particular from Jesus. They had seen these miracles that he had done. They had seen him feed thousands of people. They wanted a conquering king to overthrow Rome and to reestablish Israel as their own sovereign nation and kingdom. And that was really the prevailing view of what the Messiah would do at the time. There's many uh, prophecies about the Messiah in the Old Testament saying what he would be like and what he would do. And the people had interpreted that to mean that he would come and immediately establish his kingdom and immediately drive out the Romans and any other uh, nations that would seek to conquer them and that they would once again be their own sovereign nation. That's what they wanted from him. But that's not what he came to do. He did come to do that later. But first, he had to take care of the sin problem. Jesus had told his disciples uh, actually three times in the book of Luke leading up to this. He had told them three different times that he would be handed over to the Gentiles. He would go to Jerusalem, be handed over to the Gentiles, be put to death, and then would rise again on the third day. And each time it says that they didn't understand what he was saying. They were either prevented from understanding or they just didn't want to understand or both. Many times what we read or or learn about Jesus is different than we want it to be. So another group who had a reaction to Jesus were the religious leaders, as we've been talking about. They wanted to keep their authority and power. They were the experts. They were the religious experts. People looked to them for answers. People looked to them for sacrifices to make them right with God. And they, and Jesus had strong words for them. They were constantly trying to trap Jesus with his words. As you read um, about the week after he entered Jerusalem, it says that he was in the temple every day teaching, teaching and healing people. And there were groups of religious people who would come up and ask him questions trying to trap him with his answers. They weren't able to do it. No surprise. And if you read about this passage, that um, the account of all of this that happens in the book of John, in John 23, there's a big long passage where Jesus had very strong words for these religious leaders. He pronounces several woes to them. And by the way, a woe is not a good thing. About how they keep people from the kingdom of God with all these rules that they make up and that they care more about themselves than the people that God loves. And we read that they were plotting 
were afraid of the people. The people were hanging on his words, his every word, and they were afraid how the people would react. So they were plotting to kill him in secret. And one interesting thing, I told you that he had just recently raised Lazarus from the dead. They were so intent on shutting down Jesus that they even had a plot to kill Lazarus. Because it had been witnessed by so many people and everybody was talking about it. And there was Lazarus, proof that he was walking around now. So rather than change their heart and realize that Jesus might actually be who he says he is, they're just going to try to shut it down and kill Lazarus and kill Jesus. So who do you think Jesus is? That's really the most important question that you'll ever answer in your life. And here's the thing. We don't get to decide who Jesus is. He tells us who he is. He has shown us who he is. And we, as those of us who are Christians, we need to decide whether we're going to allow the Bible to be in authority over us. For those of you who come to the Wednesday night uh, family nights, we just talked about this this past week. You, you have to decide for yourself, am I going to live under biblical authority or am I going to put the Bible on the ground and stand on top of it and decide that I'm in authority over the Bible? What does that mean? to decide that. Well, to decide that I'm going to live under biblical authority means that if the Bible says one thing and I think something else, one of us is wrong. And it's and it's not the Bible. It's not God's word. It's not God. If God says one thing and I say something else, one of us is mistaken. God would disagree with us sometimes. So when that happens... You have to decide, am I going to change or am I just going to push the Bible aside? And that's important when we come to the very important question of who Jesus is. Jesus was not leaving his identity and his nature open to interpretation. And by the way, have you noticed that there's a very strong reaction in the world and in the culture to Christianity in particular? It's, it's because of this. It's because Christianity claims that God gets the final say and that there's only one way to God and it's through Jesus. Jesus was very clear about that. No, he said, no one, he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If you know me, you know the Father. If you don't know me, you don't know the Father. That's very clear and specific. And the world, understandably, has a very strong reaction to this. They don't like it. Because we all want our own opinions to weigh into this kind of stuff, don't we? Well, but I feel this way, and I feel that way. And if you've ever said this phrase, well, my God 
would never do this. If it says in the Bible that he wouldn't, that's fine. But if, if you're just saying, well, the Bible says this, but my God would never do that. Your God is yourself. You're making up a God in your own mind. And if you think it through logically, that doesn't make any sense. If there is a God, and there is, if there is a God, he gets to tell us who he is. God gives us free will. He gives us the ability to disagree with him and to say, well, no, God, you say this, but I want to do this. He'll let you. He'll let you do that. But you need to understand that God sets out certain rules for us, certain truths for us, not to restrict us, not to take away all of our fun, but because he's a good, perfect father who knows where the dangers are. If you're a parent and you live next to a busy road, you put a fence up in your yard, not because you hate your kids and want to restrict their fun. You put up a fence because you know where the danger is and you love them and you want to keep them safe. That's what God does for us. But he will allow us to hop the fence if that's really what we want to do. So this is very important to understand if you're a believer and you're out in culture and you're out in the world, the world is going to end up hating you if you're honest about your Christianity. Jesus told us this very clearly. He said, they hated me first And I'm the master, you're the servant. The servant is not greater than the master. If they hated me first, they're going to hate you too. Don't be surprised. And if you spend any time in the world, in the culture at all, you know that you you can try to walk the fine line of being acceptable to the culture and acceptable to God, but it doesn't work for very long. Because eventually you're going to say something unpopular. Or you're going to keep your mouth shut and and not be a, a, a light and a witness for God in the world. Pick your pick your topic. Right now, a big topic is all about uh gender ideology and sexuality. And if you say, Well, God created two genders you're going to get some pushback. Go home and post that on social media and see what happens. Or don't. But it's very important. The reason I'm saying this is it's very important as a believer to establish this in your heart and your mind. The culture is going to say one thing and act a certain way. God says something else. Which way am I going to go? Each of us has to decide whether we will accept who Jesus says he is. We do all tend to come at Jesus 
um, with certain preconceived notions in our mind. We want him to be a certain way. We want him to be okay with certain stuff. We need to understand that he may not always be who we want him to be. He may not be what we expect. Each one of us in here, I'm sure, has had something happen in our lives that has been a disappointment. Whether it be a relationship or a marriage or a family relationship or the job you have or something with your kids. And when that, when those things happen, we can tend to be mad at God. Say, God, you, did, you didn't do what I wanted you to do. You didn't act the way I wanted you to act. You didn't provide this thing for me that I wanted you to provide. You didn't fix this relationship that I wanted you to fix. But what we need to do is bring that disappointment, bring that anger to God and say, God, this isn't what I expected, but I know that you're sovereign. I know that you love me. I know that you have all things in your hand. I know that this world is broken. And you can take all this disappointment and brokenness and make something good and beautiful out of it. And I want you to do that. And I want to follow, continue to follow you as you do that, I'm going to do that in my life. I've seen people who have brokenness in their life be able to go and minister to people who are going through the same brokenness. That's a way that God can redeem something bad that happened in your life. So if you're here today and you're not a believer, if you, if you would say, I don't know about all this, I have not received Jesus as the Lord of my life, just understand that he is the way to God, that you are separated from God by your sin. We all have a sin nature. We all do things that we shouldn't do live ways we shouldn't live and say things we shouldn't say and think things we shouldn't think. Have I covered it all? That separates us from God. And you might say, well, I'm a good person. I do more good than bad. God's standard is not goodness. It's perfection. And none of us can be perfect. But he knows that. And as I mentioned before, he accounted for that. He knew that our sin would separate us from him our sin needed to be paid for. We couldn't pay it. Only he could pay it. He came to the earth in the person of Jesus, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, shed his blood in our place for our sin, was buried, and then was resurrected again three days later, showing that he is who he said he is, showing that the sting had been taken out of death, that the grave was conquered, and he offers that to you by his grace for free. Free to us, not free to him. And all you have to do is say, yes, I that. God, I want to accept your forgiveness for my I want you to give me a new heart. I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to follow you. I want you to lead me. It's that easy. It's also that hard.
because it means doing what none of us want to do and laying down our will, laying down our life, and submitting to somebody else. But he's a good father. He wants the best for you. He gave his life to get the best for you. He's coming again to set up a kingdom. We don't know when. It could be very soon. The Bible says that he's going to come. He's going to establish his throne. He's going to recreate the heavens and the earth to be the way that they were supposed to be before sin messed it all up. And we have the opportunity to be there with him in his kingdom. But it's only through Jesus. And the invitation is open to you. And for those of you that are already believers and have made that decision, what you need to think about is, am I submitting my life to his word? Am I submitting my life to live the way he wants me to live and do the things he wants me to do? Am I holding his word in supreme authority over my life? And when corrections need to be made, I'm going to make them. And and am I going to open my mouth and tell the people around me about him? He doesn't ask you to save anybody. He just asks you to tell everybody. And he does the rest. Let's pray together. Dear God, we are so thankful that you've given us your word. We're so thankful that you came and told us clearly who you are and that there was a plan for our sin to be forgiven. God, work in each one of our hearts as we sing and worship you here in just a minute. Work in each one of our hearts to examine ourselves and examine if there's ways where we need to bring our lives under your submission and be willing to open our hearts and say, God, sit on the throne of my heart. I want you to make the decisions and show me how to live. God, thank you for that you came to save us, that you're the king of all the earth. Amen. And if you're able, would you stand with us and sing one more song?